to get up sick. We're watching my TV. Checking out the news. I tell my eyeballs fail to see. I mean to say that every day is just another rotten mess. And when it's gonna change, my friend, is anybody's guess. So I'm watching and I'm waiting. Hoping for the best. Even think I'll go to prayer. Every time I hear them saying that there's no way to delay that trouble coming every day. Returning to the program, as promised, the top of the show is is our good friend and uh, and and board watcher, I guess you would say, Guy Tortorisi. Guy, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Um, it feels like I never left. <laughs> we should remind our listeners that when they're hearing this show on KDVS, as as many do, generally it's your guiding hand behind that. Yeah, in just bringing it back and forth, and um, you know introducing it you know being the good board watcher that i try to be yes indeed well you but we should also point out you you have your own program and uh, and sometimes stay around to do more stuff to remind our listeners what what that's all about <clears throat> well right after radio parallax i've got a thing that i do which is called sax scene which just introduces us to a couple few different indie artists from our regional indie scene and find out where, what they sound like and where we can catch them playing. Then from there, we roll into another one called the Earwormed Garden, where we spend about an hour with um, people who are involved in the scene, like a particular band, and talk about what their music is about, share some of their music, and that's about it. I'm guessing that um, one place you might have gone to recruiting uh, to recruit some... Um musical groups would be the Notorious Burning Man up in Nevada, which I know you attended and were keen to ask you about. Funny you should um, think there would be a tie-in with that, and, and yes, there is, because I'm part of the production team over there at the center camp, where we host a stage 24 hours a day for people to share their original works. And yeah, I was really looking forward to bringing back a whole dash of recordings from uh, the time there at Black Rock City, but that just didn't happen this year. Oh. Well, let's talk about what did happen this year, which I, I guess included a lot of unpleasant surprises. I guess if I had watched the weather report more closely, <laughs> uh, one of them would not have been so much of a surprise. <laughs> yes. You know, it's funny. When you hold an event in a lake bed <laughs> and there are a lot of waterfalls from the sky... It becomes a lake again. Yeah, it, you know, it's amazing. It's just the water's not that far down under the surface. When you're augering out a hole for a post, that auger gets muddy pretty quick. It's it's less than a foot. Even even before the rain. Yeah, even before the rain. Okay. I mean, that would be just like years that I'm accustomed to. But, yeah, once the rain is there, it, it just turns slippery and sticky all at the same time. Well, God, uh, paint a picture for us here. Uh, those of us who are not in Nevada, we're watching the news and hearing stories about Chris Rock walking out with mud on his feet and cars getting stuck and everybody, uh, just people told to shelter in place, conserve your food and all that. Uh, what, what was it like? Well, it was like that. <laughs> just what you said. Some people, you know, kind of hung out and were able to pool resources and stay where they 
they were because there was a, a do not drive order issued once the participants were all there, and that was issued by um, a government organization. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to comply with that. Others, um, I, I don't know what drove their behavior not to, and there were quite a few of those. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate those that walked out because they did much less damage to the playa than those that were trying to drive out. Mm. So if Chris Rock actually walked out there, all the power to him, and I'm glad he got picked up on the road. I, I, guess, I guess they were just, just heading for the highway and doing the best they could. And hoping, hoping. Yeah. It's not a very well-traveled road. Yeah. Just a lot of vendors are back and forth during the, uh, the event time. But, yeah, people were out there. They were mucking it up. Um, it turns into, like, a really nice clay. And if you walk around not barefoot or with something that is kind of smooth at the bottom of your feet, you start picking up more of it, and you start ending up like Ziggy Stardust. Standing uh, on these big old platforms, or Prince, <laughs> to bring it more maybe relevant to some others. I see. So I, I guess for a week uh, was was it a three week event? And for the while it's there, it's what the third largest largest city in the state of Nevada. It it has been <clears throat> the third largest city in Nevada at the time that it's operating. People are out there for a very long time setting up the city laying the groundwork and everything and driving that very first bike. Um, when I go out there, I go out there a good week before the event even happens, and they let in the theme camps to help build our part of the city under community services. And then we run things, and then we break it down afterwards. But the event runs for about a week. And what about this temple? Did you help? Did you were you part of constructing this strange building out out there? No, no, I, I didn't build any temples. Um, there is a temple that is out there, and it was the Temple of the Heart. And the man which they burned this year was um, the oldest man that they've burned, you know, I guess ever. Wait, wait, what do you, what do you mean the oldest? What does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? So. You burned an old man? <laughs> yeah, they, they burned the man. Yeah, they burned the old man. They, they burned the man on a particular date. So, you know, without all these weather events, um, it would have happened on a particular period, predetermined day of, of the week. But because of these weather events, it got postponed. And then they got approval to do it. So it's like the man was like two or three days older than it would have been if it was burned originally. I see. Did he burn as well, being all soggy and stuff? <clears throat> you know what? It was pretty damn spectacular. <laughs> the pyrotechnics that were on display this year were fantastic. They, they do a great job. Yeah, he, and the man did a, um, a, a dive right into the fire. Uh, okay. Explain that one. You, you, you can't see all that in my mind no, as, I'm, I, as I replay it. Yeah, people don't usually <laughs> dive into fires, and then it's just, you know, they do, well, but it, they don't do well. No, they don't. But it, this is a wooden structure, and the arms come up, and they go up above its head, and, you know, it bursts into flames. And as it's standing there, you know, an arm may fall off of it into the flames that are all around it, and mm-hmm. then 
it falls off this pedestal head first into the flames. That's about the time that I decided to leave. Oh. I don't know what else happened after that. You've been to several of these things, I gather. Uh, should, should we non-burners consider making the trip sometime? I think it would be a good experience for anyone who is interested to see how a social experiment goes on. There's lots of art. There's lots of things to do. And the whole principles behind it and the experiment that goes on out there and just self-organizing in this harsh environment that could throw anything at you, like to stage three weather events within a, a week period, um, to just high winds that will blow over porta potties and have the best time of your life while doing it. <laughs> oh, my. You know, 20 years ago, we talked to one of our correspondents, Whitney Lehman, about her trip up to Burning Man, and she painted a picture of some, you know, uh, burning dust that was blowing around and naked people running amok and a lot of people on under the influence of something stronger than a cocktail. And it sounded like quite a zoo. Well, it is. And, you know, it is kind of cool that driving down the city street would just be an art car thumping and bumping and lights all over it as it goes. Um, people walk around out here, outside of Burning Man, naked. You just happen to see it there in the city. <laughs> you can go to any beach and find a nudist beach. Well, yeah, okay. Or a colony or community out here. Uh, but, you know, at Burning Man, they just happen to um, walk down the street. So it's a, it's, it's a small minority of people who are unclothed, I guess. People are um, abbreviated in their clothing choices. <laughs> it, is, it is warm out there. Yeah. You know, why cover up so much? Well, I hope everybody su- use sufficient sunscreen. Yes, I, I believe they do. All right, well, Guy, uh, it sounds like quite an adventure. I, I would ask, in closing, uh, what your plans are for future Burning Man events. Well, first off, as soon as I got back, I fixed the things that were broke for this year, for next year already, because as I was laying in the van looking up, I noticed that there was a leak in my ceiling from a junction box I had put in there. And the other things I'm going to plan for is I will not forget my muck boots. Yeah, I was just going to say galoshes would be really handy. Yeah, the ones without the big lugs on the bottom. Just like you're walking through a barnyard, man. Those kind of boots. And kitty litter or that stuff that hamsters use. I think I I definitely will bring that with me as well. For what purpose? Well, you know, if you have to sit in place for, you know, say three days, and and there's a no drive order... You're not getting the porto service. <laughs> but people are still eating and drinking mm-hmm. and chatting and dancing and doing all those other bio things. Mm-hmm. Um, those portos, you know, what are they? <laughs> seven people for one day or something like that? This is, this is frankly not a turn I expected this conversation to take. <laughs> Well, you wanted something memorable. I do, and, I, and, and boy, you've obliged. <laughs> you have to be resourceful. You have to be self-reliant. 
I've got my own bucket. I've got a lid. I've got <laughs> those heavy-duty trash compactor bags. Try to keep the liquid separated from the other, and, you know, it shouldn't stink, but kitty litter or that hamster shred stuff on top of it helps quite a bit. I think we provided a, a fine public service announcement here for people who want to take part in this event in the future. Yes, be prepared. Guy, uh, thanks for the update, and uh, thanks for all the work you do, and uh, come back uh, talk to us again soon. Anytime. Thank you. All right, brother. All right. Okay. Bye. Blow your harmonica song. And wouldn't you know it, that little discussion is a great lead-in to the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mr. McMillan? You don't think I've ever had a chance to use the, the segue. And speaking of festivals that went awry... But we have to note that it was a good week last week for fraudsters with the news that convicted fraudster Billy McFarlane is hoping to stage a sequel to his 2017 disastrous fire festival. The Bahamas musical event that landed him in prison on charges of bilking $26 million from investors and customers. That particular con job, which we couldn't resist talking about on this show, uh, during which ticket buyers were promised luxury accommodations and performances by major artists, ended up stranded on an island with no running water and no entertainment. This was well documented in Netflix and Hulu documentaries. Yet, despite that, McFarland, age 31, is now hawking Fire Festival 2 which he says will take place in the Caribbean next year. Yeah, some, somewhere in the Caribbean, I guess. A lot of islands out there. And he is promising the island adventure of a lifetime. <laughs> I'm sure that the previous fire festival goers will be able to back him up on that one. But as it stands, he released the first 100 festival tickets last week and has said the tickets, which cost $500 a piece, sold out in a day. We would add that it was a bad week last week for endorsements with the news that convicted felon O.J. Simpson announced that he is thus far very impressed by GOP presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. Said Simpson, this guy's onto something. No word on whether Vivek has made any effort to find the real killers. We'll have to keep following that. But uh, personally, we're pretty sure that whatever he's onto is not that. And, and in fact, probably not much of anything else either. And it was an ugly week, we'd have to say, for Hans Niemann, who is a U.S. chess grandmaster who's been accused of cheating. The website chess.com, however, lifted its ban on his participation in chess events, I guess. And world champion Magnus Carlsen has now agreed to play him. Now, we should note that some had speculated that Hans Niemann was using vibrating anal beads to get messages. 
Radio Parallax takes the position that the less we know about vibrating anal beads, the better. And finally, we'd have to say, and to this we owe The Week magazine, that it was both a bad and ugly week for getting dirty. After 112 participants in what's called Tough Mudder, an obstacle course race in California, wound up contracting infections whose symptoms included fever, muscle pains, and boils. Participant Chris Palacos was quoted as saying, anywhere on my body that touched the ground had red spots. Well, thankfully up at Burning Mad, they apparently had better quality mud. All right, I think I'll return at this point to my possibly inadequate description of my time warp trip to Southern California and to come forward in time and get out of the warp and talk about what was done in present time on the way home. I was determined to take a look at Tulare Lake. This is a body of water that was, in the 1800s, the second largest, the actually the largest freshwater lake in the United States, west of the Mississippi. In more recent years, it has been a cotton farm. But given the prodigious amount of rainfall that we got here in California last winter, well, there was just too much water to divert, and the lake reappeared. Now, not so long ago, I heard that it uh, spread across 800 square miles. By comparison, Lake Tahoe is about 200 square miles. So I was pretty sure on the way home, it'd be easy to find. When you know it, it wasn't as easy as we thought. We made a beeline uh, out of the Tehachapis to the town of Corcoran, a town I had never visited. A town I dare say uh, most of you have probably never visited if you traverse California, you're, you're usually doing it on either Highway 99 or, or Highway 5, or perhaps in some cases Highway 101. But Corcoran is stuck out in the middle of the San Joaquin Valley between those major arteries. And therefore, I think it's fair to say it doesn't get a lot of through traffic. Now, some years back, we entertained the notion of uh, reaching out to the writers Mark Erex and Rick Wartzman about their book, The King of California, subtitled J.G. Boswell and the Making of a Secret American Empire. It's a hell of a good read and had a tremendous amount of data about how it was that this this empire for growing cotton and a few other crops uh, sprung up on what used to be a lake bottom. And there's such a good book, I need to just, you know, excerpt a, a, a few pages from it. The writers had a pretty tough time nailing down J.G. Boswell, who's the heir to this cotton empire, but they finally did so. The narrative picks up with, That first day with Boswell, we took care to steer clear of subjects that might displease him and put a stop to our conversation right there. The idea of dealing with reporters struck him as so needless and foreign that when you called company headquarters, there was no PR flock to answer even the most basic questions. If they were lucky, reporters might be referred to corporate counsel Ed Gearman, a man so dyspeptic that he returned maybe one out of ten calls and only then to, to say with unmistakable glee that the company's comment was no comment. Now, when we drove west out of Corcoran, what impressed me was, well, uh, the first thing that impressed me was that the roads were closed. Naturally, in our dedication to bring you the story of what was going on, we drove around those roadblocks <laughs> and did so, I think, a total of seven times. Turns out there's levees everywhere and the roads aren't, were not flooded, although in some cases you could see where the water had gotten up uh, to the edges of them. And I think, I think the portions out in the center of what is now Tulare Lake are, were and are underwater. 
The lake, such as it was, resembled to me, I think, just a giant bowl of soup. The water was pretty shallow, and what vegetation was below the surface seemed to be rotting away happily. But anyway, speaking of the levees that we used, with the road on them to go first from north to south and then from east to west, the narrative in The King of California picks up with... The giant levee, where we had come to rest that afternoon, cut across the confluence of three of the four rivers that met on his land. So complete was nature's bending to that absurdity of where he was standing, smack dab in the bottom of a lake, or rather what was once the largest body of freshwater west of the Mississippi, no longer struck him. He and a handful of farmers before him had sucked Tulare Lake dry and made its rivers run backward. No landscape in America... Not the cotton south, not the grain belt of the Midwest, nor the cane fields of Florida have been more altered by the hand of agriculture. It was a landscape every bit as engineered as the Mississippi Valley and far more intensively cultivated. The scale was so unheard of that they had to invent their own one-of-a-kind machines, monster moon buggies to suck water out of the canals and hurl it back across the fields. Notes the authors, against the will of two presidents, Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman, the Boswells and other King County growers had convinced the federal government to make an extraordinary philosophical concession. The four rivers that followed their enduring path from the mountains to the valley weren't replenishing a freshwater lake with origins in the Pleistocene era. Rather, powerful congressmen and bureaucrats decided that the rivers were agents of flood and it was productive farmland, the future of the West, they were flooding. Even at the bottom of a lake, floods had to be controlled, and controlling them was the domain of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. One by one, beginning in the 1940s, they dammed the four rivers in the foothills above the valley, projects underwritten in part by payments from Boswell and other growers. This dam building was eventually topped by an even sweeter prize, The farmers served by the irrigation releases from the dams could grow their crops without any worry about the 960-acre limitation that constrained farmers elsewhere. Here in Kings County, the federal law didn't apply. The irrigated farms of Tulare Lake could grow as big as they liked. They also known as regarding water rights that when it came to protecting his water rights, Boswell assembled one of the most effective lobbies either in the state legislature in Sacramento or the U.S. Congress had ever seen. His boys unseated the congressman who didn't quite see the regulation of big farms his way, and they persuaded the Secretary of the Interior to tear the teeth out of an 80-year-old federal reclamation law, all in the name of keeping Boswell territory in one piece. Anyway, it's a darn fine book, and we probably ought to reach out to one of the authors to come talk to us about it. Of course, as I look at the copyright on this book, it's from 2003. Well, we'll have to see. I do recommend, dear listener, that if you are going down to Southern California, either down I-5 or I-99, you might want to go out and evade a few roadblocks and take a look at this giant body of water yourself. And if you do that from the I-99 side, we, we suggest that you check out, as we did, the Colonel Allensworth State Historic Park. Now, it's a sad fact of American history that uh, black people were, um, let's just say, excluded when it came to purchasing real estate. But a man named Colonel Allen Allensworth, who was an army chaplain, an educator, an orator, and a town co-founder, set out to create an independent democratic town where African Americans could live in control of their own destiny. Land was purchased in this area, an area south of today's Corcoran, 
and a community came together. It's an interesting story. Allensworth was born into slavery in 1842. At age 12, he got sent away for violating the law that prohibited the education of slaves. In 1862, he fled slavery to join the Union Navy and was honorably discharged as a chief petty officer. After the Civil War, the colonel achieved the formal education he'd been denied, and in 1877 married Josephine Lavelle, a schoolteacher, music teacher, and gifted musician, and they raised two daughters. In 1886, with a doctorate in theology, Allensworth became chaplain to the 24th Infantry, one of the Army's four African-American regiments. He retired as lieutenant colonel in 1906, the first African-American to attain such a high rank. The Allensworth settled in Los Angeles, and in 1906, the colonel met Professor William Payne, an educator whose family recently moved to Pasadena. With a mutual desire to live in an environment where African Americans could live free from discrimination, they merged their values and those of other pioneers of like mind to establish an independent, self-sufficient colony. They formed the California Colony and Home Promotion Association and in 1908 purchased 800 acres along the Santa Fe Rail Stop from the Pacific Farming Company. So it was in 1909 the colony of Allensworth began to rise from the flat countryside. And for a few years it prospered. But there were some problems there. The water was contaminated, evidently, and the, the wells were dropping. In uh, 1914, unfortunately for the residents of Allensworth, the Santa Fe Railroad moved its rail stop from Allensworth to Alpaw, and in doing so, lost Allensworth much of its economic base. And as it happened, the colonel himself was uh, killed in a traffic accident in Los Angeles, there was an economic slump following World War I, and pretty soon the town just sort of drifted apart. It was set to be uh, demolished in the 1970s. By 1973, it was no longer even on the state maps. But a group got together to create a state park in 1974, and it is there for you to, to visit. And we encourage you to do so. State Historic Park gets about 70,000 visitors a year, and I, 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 think, I think, dear listener, you, you should be one of them in the future. Anyway, as we're heading for the last roundup here, I would note that in July, we mentioned briefly on this program about how we'd stumbled upon a, uh, a demonstration of medieval combat. It was a very curious thing to witness, but I did not know to the full extent to which it's really a thing. Writing in the LA Times, David Kelly has an article titled, <laughs> based on a quote from one of the participants, I'm just here for the violence. The piece goes on to describe how it is men dressed in medieval armor go out with armaments and go at one another. Well, not with real medieval armaments, but still, they whack people pretty hard. While we were watching, one of the participants took a blow that sort of got between the armor that ended their uh, their combat and sent him off to the infirmary for a while. Turned out okay. Notes the article. This is a world of modern medieval battle, a human demolition derby in which men and women wearing up to 100 pounds of armor slash and hammer one another with blunted steel swords, axes, and maces until someone goes down, gives up, or loses on points. Now, this is a little bit different than the thing I saw. That was just one-on-one combat. This doesn't sound like a demolition derby. The article quotes a... Uh, Spence Fashing, who's captain of a Minnesota group that does these things, is saying, two common threads run through those who do this sport. You have a combat sports background, or you're a nerd into Dungeons and Dragons. To which he added, I've been a nerd and a jock all my whole life, so this scratches both itches for me. We are out of time. 
You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, who has an admitted preference for monster energy drinks over monster truck pulls. Thanks to Guy Tortorisi for his update on what happened at uh, Burning Man. And, you know, come to think of it, uh, I-, I believe I have some extra cat litter, which, which may help her next year. I'm Douglas Everett, and that definitely does it for today's program. We'll see you soon. <laughs>